Hello, and welcome to the Crossway Christian Church Podcast. We are a church who wants to practice the way of Jesus together. If we can help you in any way, let us know. And be sure to check out our website at crosswaycc.org. Now let's get back to the podcast. Think of someone you know who has a very distinctive walk. What makes us stand out? Are they uh, never in a hurry or always in a hurry? Do they prance or do they trudge? Do they saunter or do they lumber? Do they meander or do they kind of march? What makes it memorable? When I think about distinctive walks, I think about my dad. My dad had a very purposeful way of walking. He was always on mission. One of my favorite memories involving my dad's walk concerns my brother, Philip. Philip was a sophomore in high school, and he was not doing well in school. It wasn't because he didn't have the academic ability. Very simply, he just did not want to do his homework. Anybody else like that? Anybody know anybody like that? Well, back in the day, they sent report cards home with the students. So when Philip received his report card and saw that he had a D in math, he took his black pen and he wrote B, and then he poked holes in it, and he told my parents that it accidentally ripped on the way home. Well, they also used to send home grade letters reporting on a student's performance during the quarter. So Philip knew this, so do you know what he did? He intercepted the mail before my parents could get it. And this was a great plan and worked until the day it did not. And a grade letter slipped under Phil's radar and into the hands of my dad, who read it while Phil was at school. So dad looked at the teacher's name and called up to school and got a hold of the teacher. And the teacher said to dad, well, I'm surprised to hear from you. What do you mean? My dad said. Teacher replied, well, I've sent you lots of great letters about Philip. And this is the first time you've ever called me. When dad found out that Phil had been keeping great letters from him, he was livid. He jumped in the car that moment and he drove to Philip's school. And it so happened that Philip was in the hallway and he said he looked way down at the end of the hall and he saw this man walking like this, the angry walk. We knew it well. So he did what any quick thinking boy would do who knew he was in trouble. He hid in the boy's bathroom. Thankfully, this story does have a happy ending. Once dad told Philip that there'd be no driver's license for him until he got his grades up, Philip had all the motivation he needed and there were no more academic issues. What do people think of how Christians walk today? What would they think of? Would it be the angry walk? Today as we turn to Ephesians 5, we're challenged to live like God, to walk like God. It may, your translation may say, be imitators of God or follow the Lord's example, live like him. In short, walk like God. In some translations, the word walk is used eight times in the book of Ephesians. As Pastor Dave Ripper has shared in previous weeks, the central verse in this whole book is found in Ephesians 4.1, where Paul tells us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling of which we've been called. Walk like God. Why? <laughs> Why should I care about walking like God? Because this is how we honor the God who's done so much for us. All the things we learned and discovered in the first three chapters of the book. 
It's also how we become a more resilient people walking like God. When God destined us to be his sons and daughters, he destined us to be holy. That is to walk like him. So we turn to the book of Ephesians chapter 5 verse 1. Here's what we read. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Again, walk like God. The therefore refers back to the previous verse that we looked at last week when Dave Ripper preached. Ephesians 4.32, which reads, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. This challenge to forgive each other as God forgives us leads very naturally into the first way we walk like God. Walk in love. Let me ask you a question. When people today are asked this question, what comes to mind when you hear the word Christian? Do you think they say love? Surveys outside the church say they do not. And I would imagine in today's culture, many Christians inside the church would also say that's not the first thing that comes to mind when they hear the word Christian. As Dave shared last week, there's a lot of anger among us. And there is a place for righteous anger as we see in the character of God himself. The problem with us is that our righteous anger quickly devolves into self-righteous anger. And disobeying what Paul challenges us not to do, we do hold on to our anger, and in our anger, we sin. When Jesus prepares those very first disciples, those very first apprentices, for his departure, he tells them this, A new command I give you, love one another. As I've loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. The defining characteristic of a disciple of Jesus, an apprentice of Jesus, is love, not anger. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 13, when Paul describes this kind of love, he says this, love is not easily angered. And just before that is this phrase, love is not self-seeking. And this truth ties directly to our passage today as we learn what it means to walk in love. Ephesians 5.2 And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. What does it mean to walk in love? It means to walk like Jesus who gave himself up for us. His example is to inspire us to give ourselves up on behalf of other people. In fact, his disciple John writes this. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. When I think of a supreme example of someone who walked in love, my mind goes to a man named Father Maximilian Kolbe. Father Kolbe was a Polish priest. During World War II, the Nazis arrested him for publishing unapproved materials and sent him to the concentration camp we know as Auschwitz. One night in July of 1941, a fellow prisoner escaped from his barracks, barracks 14. He was successful. So the next day, uh, the commandant told all the prisoners lined up in ranks from barracks 14 that 10 of them would die because of this man's escape. So he moved up and down the rows of men, open your mouth, stick out your tongue, show me your teeth. And in so doing, he chose 10 men to die by way of the starvation bunker. One of the absolute worst ways to die. You simply are starved to death. 
One of the men who was chosen began crying out and weeping over his family, saying, my poor wife, my poor children, what will they do? Suddenly there was a commotion in the ranks and a a prisoner broke out of them. This was unheard of. Uh, It usually meant immediate death right on the spot. But the man was Father Colby, and for whatever reason, the commandant didn't kill him. Instead, he looked at him and he said this, What does this Polish pig want of me? And Colby responded softly, I want to die in the place of one of the men condemned to die. Why? snapped the commandant. So Father Colby knew the Nazi dictum of destruction of the weak and elderly first, so he responded in this way, I'm an old man, sir, and good for nothing. My life will serve no purpose. His words triggered the response he wanted from the commandant who asked him, well, in whose place do you want to die? And pointing to the man weeping over his family, Colby said, that one. So the commandant nodded to his assistant who drew a line through numbers 5669 and wrote in numbers 16670, Father Colby's number. And Father Colby walked in love to his death in a starvation bunker. Now, it's quite likely that many of us will not have to physically die for another person. But as we learn to walk in love, there's so many opportunities to learn to give up ourselves, to die to our own wants and desires and preferences and expectations. Think about the challenges of living closely with other people, especially during this pandemic. Think about all the opportunities God's given us to give up ourselves on behalf of our families. I want you to ask yourself this. How might I walk in greater love toward those closest to me? As you begin to return to work and school, ask this question, how might I work in greater love toward those around me? What might I give up for the sake of walking like God? My time, my routine, my comfort, my convenience? Yes, Walking in love like God means we do sacrifice, but we never outgive God. Too many people think that happiness or fulfillment comes from getting our own way all the time, doing our own thing. This is not true. We know that there are so many spoiled, self-indulgent people who've lived like that and they're absolutely miserable. Do you know why? Because self is an evil master. You're not going to be happy or content or fulfilled when you're enslaved to self. But when we learn to walk in love, as we give ourselves up for others, God begins to break the reign of self in our lives. And we begin to get a taste and an experience of some of the peace and freedom and fulfillment that God longs to bestow on us as we walk like him. When we think about walking in love, I imagine many of us may not automatically think about our sex lives. But this is also an area where God calls us to give up ourselves, to give up our wants for the sake of others. Ephesians 5, 3 to 4. Here's what Paul tells us. But sexual immorality and impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. That means believers. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. Paul turns from self-sacrifice to its very very opposite, self-indulgence, from genuine love to the perversion we call lust. 
The Greek words here for sexual immorality, porneia, or impurity, akatharsia, cover every kind of sexual sin. In other words, all sexual intimacy outside God's gift, God's boundaries of marriage. To these words, Paul adds covetousness. We might think of the command in the Old Testament, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. And not only are we to avoid indulging ourselves in sexual sin, they're not even to be named among us. We're to avoid talking or even thinking about them, which, let's be honest, that's a real challenge in today's promiscuous culture. Verse 4 goes beyond uh, immorality to vulgarity. Filthiness and foolish talk and crude joking all uh, express a dirty mind expressing itself in dirty talk. These things are out of place for those who want to walk in love with their sexuality. Instead, there's to be thanksgiving. Now, why thanksgiving? Well, because sexual sin and covetousness, again, express self-centeredness. Thanksgiving recognizes God's generosity and his generous gift of sex to be exercised within his parameters. As we thank God for his plan, we express our trust in his wisdom and his love. Let's remember, God is the one who gave us the gift of sex. It's one of his good gifts. God calls us to avoid sexual immorality, not because sex is something of which we should be ashamed or afraid, but because it's a high and holy gift which should not be cheapened. When we respect God's boundaries, we walk in love toward him and, yes, toward other people. But in case there are some of you listening who may think, well, who cares? It's not that big a deal. I'm going to do what I want. God gives a sober warning in these next few verses. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. Why walk in love in the sexual arena according to these verses? Because of the reality of God's judgment. It may seem like sexually immoral people get away with it down here, but their behavior, their actions are not hidden from God. He sees and will judge. Now, this does not mean that every time we have a sexually immoral thought or word or even deed that we lose our place in the kingdom of God. Otherwise, none of us would have an inheritance. Jesus died for all sins, including sexual sins. Rather, what Paul is referring to here are those people who've given themselves up to such a lifestyle without shame or repentance. They've made sexual immorality an idol. They worship it, not Jesus. Let no one deceive you. Then as now, there are those who say the sex outside of marriage is no big deal. Now, as Dave Ripper preached on last week, Ephesus was a place where people worshipped the fertility goddess Artemis. And sexual immorality was part of, quote, the worship of this goddess. Further, there were false teachers who said, hey, you can do what you want with your body and not impact your soul. And in contrast to that, God tells us to abstain from sinful passions which wage war against our very soul. And he reminds us that his wrath will come on those who practice such disobedience. Now, I imagine there's some of us that have a hard time with the word wrath as applied to God. And yet, even in the New Testament, the word wrath is used over 30 times. You see, like anger, wrath is a righteous expression of our holy God 
towards sin. And what wrath does is emphasize the action that comes out of the anger. In this case, judgment on those who practice such disobedience. Because of this reality, we're not to become partners with them. Now, this doesn't mean we don't have any contact with such people because we want to be able to share the freedom that comes from knowing Jesus who came to take God's wrath on himself. That as we come to faith in him, we come under his protection. And honestly, to totally avoid contact with such people, we would have to leave planet Earth. The command here is very specific to not partner with people in their immorality. Meaning, if we share in their practices, we'll share in their judgment. We're to walk in love. And again, this means that when we participate in sexual immorality, we're not acting loving toward God nor toward others. We transgress them. Paul, even in Thessalonians, uses the word, we defraud other people when we do these things. And honestly, if we live that kind of lifestyle, we show that we don't belong to the one who came to set us free. Walking like God means walking in love. It also means walking in light. Walking in light. Verses 5, excuse me, chapter 5, 8 to 14, here's what Paul tells us. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Have you ever experienced total darkness? One summer, I served as a, an army chaplain to a group of soldiers at uh, advanced individual train at Fort Knox, Kentucky. It was hot and humid as it is in Kentucky in July. And so one Saturday, we made a trip to Mammoth Cave. And I want to tell you, descending from the 90 plus degree heat and 90 plus humidity down into the coolness of that cave, 50 something degrees, was wonderful. But what stands out to me is when the ranger asked us all to turn off all lights. And he dimmed the lights that were on the walls of the cave as well. It was utter and total darkness. Your, your eyes kind of freak out. They're kind of panicking. They're looking for something to see, something to latch onto. Now, what Paul tells us in these verses is not that we were in the darkness, which we were, but he says we were actually darkness. And now that we know Jesus, we're not only in the light, we're actually light in him. Jesus says to us in the book of Matthew, you are the light of the world. So we are God's light and we're to walk as children of the light. So what in the world does this mean? Well, he tells us it means shining with all that is good and right and true. The fruit of the light. We might think the fruit of the spirit is comparable. It means, he says, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. And the, the word here has a sense of you find a big piece of ore and you're seeking to discern the gold content within. And it also communicates here that it's more than just finding out the value of something. We're actually supposed to participate in that which God calls good. We're to seek to do things that please him. So how in the world do we find out what those are? It's very simple. In his word, what we call scripture, the Bible, we read it and we study it and we, we meditate on it and we ask God to write it on our hearts 
that we might learn to walk in the light. And as children of the light, we're called not to participate in a similar way as we were earlier in the unfruitful works of darkness, not to partner with those, but again, we're to expose them. And the word here, by the way, is more than just exposing. It has the idea of correcting or reproving or pointing out something to someone, which means what? Which means we can't just avoid darkness ourselves. We also need to help other people avoid darkness and learn to walk in the light. This may mean sharing the gospel, obviously, with someone who doesn't know Jesus, or it may mean confronting a brother and sister who's caught in sin with God's truth and light. We've got a hard time, don't we, doing both of these, especially filled with grace and truth. But if we're going to walk like God, if we're going to walk in the light, we need to share his light with others. Who in your life right now needs God's light? With whom do you need to have a hard conversation? We don't like hard conversations. I don't like them because I know it makes other people uncomfortable. And frankly, it makes me uncomfortable to have to have them. But we do them anyway because it's important for us to help people walk in the light. And when God's light shines on sin, sin is is exposed and it's cleansed. And ultimately, people are renewed. The light of Christ can turn anything upon which it shines into light. And our goal as we walk in the light is to help other people walk in the light as well. Back in the summer of 1997, I went on something called the Pastor's Wilderness Adventure through Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. And so I was with a group of about nine other pastors for a few days. And we uh, hiked and, and kayaked and hung out and prayed and talked all on a couple islands near Acadia National Park. And I remember that first morning jumping in the kayak and paddling that, and we literally had seals swimming next to us. And I remember things like competitive games of bocce with rocks. I mean, where else do you do that except in something like this? Now, the second island we stayed at was a little bit more raised at a higher uh, area, and, and it was covered with trees, which went right up to the edge of where it dropped off rather sharply, kind of some sharp bluffs. So we hiked up there later in the day, and we made camp, and we hung out, and then we went to bed. Well, in the middle of the night, nature called me. And not wanting to disturb other people, I I walked down a little path with my little flashlight, walked about 10 steps off of the path, found an appropriate spot, took care of business. Well, then I retraced my steps, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and I 10, and discovered that somebody had moved the path. So I retraced my steps again, and I did it again, and I did it again, I guess what? I was lost. In the middle of the night, in the darkness, in the woods that went up right to the edge of cliffs and where I could fall and get hurt, if not worse. So now I felt really embarrassed. And so I thought, do I venture to try and find my way back? And I thought, you know, I didn't really want to die because I'd gone to the bathroom in the middle of the night. So I kind of called out, Kurt, it's the name of the leader. Kurt, still nothing. Kurt, yes, what is it? It's Dave. I'm lost in the woods. Can you call out to me and lead me back to camp? And so he continued to talk to me, giving me his voice, which led me out of the darkness back to safety. As we walk in the light, sharing it with others, we help lead them safely to the God who made them and died for them. We help them also not only walk in the light, but walk in wisdom which is another way we walk like God, according to this chapter. Walk in love, walk in light, walk in wisdom. 
verses 15 to 17, here's what Paul writes. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. <clears throat> look carefully how you walk. If we're going to walk in wisdom, we're going to have to look carefully how we walk. And let's be honest, this world has got a lot of darkness and there are a lot of cliffs over which we can fall. So we have to be careful how we walk, how we live. So what does God tell us here about wisdom? First of all, he tells us it means to make the best use of our time. Now again, the sense of that word is to redeem or to buy back. We talk about redeeming the time. The wise person knows that time is precious. We all have the same amount. You can't stretch the time. It's what you're going to do with it. Are you going to make the best use of it? The oldest psalm in the Bible is Psalm 90. And in it, Moses prays this. Teach us, O God, to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. I hope during this pandemic, you've been thinking about how you use your time. And if not, do it this week. Ask God, Lord God, if I'm going to walk in wisdom... What does it look like to use my time? How might I make the best use of it? A second way Paul says we walk in wisdom is to understand the will of the Lord. Now there's the general will for all of us found in God's word. So for example, I can say confidently that it's God's will for you and for me to love him with our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love our neighbors ourselves. But then there's God's specific will. And in addition to God's word, we seek the counsel of other believers and we pray for God to reveal his specific, particular will to us. Maybe it has to do with marriage or a job or a college decision or many, many different decisions. The wise person seeks God's will, even though it may not look like what we expect or desire. But we are going to walk in wisdom. We need to trust in God's plan and that it's best. When I look back over my life, I have to tell you honestly that most of what I've experienced over many decades is not what I imagined. Honestly, I would never have chosen to live in Joplin, Missouri. God told us to go, so we did. I would never have imagined living in a place where I paid $4,100 a month for an apartment, Battery Park City, Manhattan. I mean, who could imagine living in a place that expensive? But I have to tell you that as hard as God's particular will can be, it's still the best for our lives. Rick Warren, when asked what the definition of success is, likes to quote his dad. And he says this, success is discerning the will of God for your life and doing it. The wise person will do likewise. It's not easy to walk like God. <laughs> Where do we get the power to walk in love and to walk in light and to walk in wisdom from the Holy Spirit? If we're going to walk like God, in love, in light, in wisdom, then we're going to have to walk in the Spirit's fullness. The Spirit's fullness. Ephesians 5.18, Paul writes this, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. When we come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, we are given the gift of the Holy Spirit. On that very first sermon that Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, uh, Luke tells us that people were pierced to the heart with the truth of the gospel. And they cry out, what shall we do? And Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In this book of Ephesians, in chapter 1, Paul tells us that when we believed in Jesus, we were sealed in him with a promised gift, the Holy Spirit. 
So the Holy Spirit comes to live in us when we repent and put our faith in Jesus. We sometimes call this the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. He dwells within. But it is one thing to have the Holy Spirit live in us and another thing to have him fill us. Now, being filled with the Spirit is another way of saying being in control and empowered and influenced by the Holy Spirit. So in this example, he's telling us, rather than choosing to come under the influence of wine slash alcohol, choose to submit yourself to the influence and control of the Holy Spirit. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's in the imperative. You know what that means? It's a command. This isn't a suggestion. It's a command. It's in the plural, which means what? It applies to all of us who are believers. And it's in something we call the present tense, which means what? It means we have to keep on being filled with the Holy Spirit. So when we believe in Jesus and his spirit comes to live in us, we are sealed in the spirit. That's a once for all thing. He comes to live in us permanently. But to continue to have him fill us and empower us demands that we seek on trying to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So how does that happen? We make a decision to turn from sin. We don't live according to the world's ways and according to our flesh, the world and the devil, as the saying goes. Rather, we turn from that, we submit ourselves to God's ways, and we ask him to fill us, to control us, to empower us, to lead us by his Holy Spirit. And it's the Holy Spirit that gives us the power to fulfill the key verse of Ephesians 5, uh, the whole book, rather, which is to walk in a manner worthy of the calling of which we've been called. He is the one, the Spirit is the one who enables us to walk like God. In wisdom, in light, and yes, in love. Have you ever gone sailing? If so, have you ever been becalmed that is dead in the water? And if you have, you know, it's not very fun. In fact, they give you these little paddles. We've rented sailboats and this has happened sometimes. And, you know, you're trying to paddle these things, right? And it doesn't, you don't go anywhere very well. You're kind of going like this. And it's very inefficient and awkward. And you eventually run out of gas and you don't go very far. And that is how too many people are trying to live the Christian life, paddling in their own strength through it. But we're not designed to live the Christian life that way. Instead, we're to let the Holy Spirit fill the sails of our life and propel us forward. This is how we live as a resilient people. It's a spirit-filled life. It's the power of God's Spirit that enables us to do this. Now, there are other results of being filled with the Spirit. If you look at verse 19 and 20, 19 talks about worship. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making melody in your heart to God. But I want today to focus our attention on the worship of life. That means walking, living like God in love and light and wisdom. Verse 20 talks about gratitude, uh, giving thanks to God the Father through the Lord Jesus Christ. But I want us to focus on the walking like God as a way of showing our gratitude to our God who's done so much for us. This week, I want you to ask God, what's preventing me, God, from living more fully in the fullness of your spirit? Is it a sin that I'm just having a hard time giving up? And as God reveals things to you, make a decision to turn from whatever it is. As the writer of Hebrews says, whatever hinders or whatever sin entangles, submit yourself to the rule of God in your life and ask him to fill you with your spirit that you might walk like him. One day, many years ago, over 30 now, I was in the seminary library where I went to school, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. And the student fellow student who was helping me behind the desk, the student worker, was 
just amazingly kind and thoughtful and servant-minded and helpful. It just was so impactful just in dealing with him. And when he left to go help somebody else, I turned to the librarian and I said, I said, this guy is amazing. <laughs> I said, he, he's got such high character and his actions and attitude are so good. And she told me something I never forgot. She said, let me tell you something about this guy. He graduated from Columbia Bible College in South Carolina. Every student I've met from there without fail exhibits that type of conduct. She said, it's gotten to the point where if I just see that on their resume, when they're applying for a job at the library, I know I don't even need to interview them. I know I'm going to get a godly young man or woman. Wouldn't it be great if when people heard the name Crossway Christian Church, they said, oh, those are the people that walk like God in love and, and light and wisdom. Wouldn't it be great that they could tell that we belong to Jesus and gave glory to our Father in heaven because of how we walk. Will you pray with me? Father God, we thank you for the challenge to walk like you, and we do confess we cannot do it in our own strength. We just can. But God, we do thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit. Lord, teach us to walk in the fullness of the Spirit, to be empowered and controlled in such a way that your love and your light and your wisdom comes naturally out of our lives. God, we thank you for your word, which is living and active. We thank you for what you want to do in us individually and corporately as your people here at Crossway Christian Church. We pray in Jesus' name.